close to the ground on that's important. Like this is where the mistake comes in a lot of product development in the tech world. Historically, the epicenter for technology design and development has happened in first world countries. And when you have those same people trying to apply it to something in Kenya or Africa, you start seeing a disconnect. That's Eric Herzman, Kenyan entrepreneur and CEO of the connectivity and technology company Brick. Yeah, I yeah, know. Everybody's always like, I don't look or sound like I come from here. Having spent most of his life and career in East Africa, Eric has seen firsthand the importance of being close to the customer and where a lack of understanding of the local context is problematic. An example of this was, I remember back in 2010, 11, we had these guys who were kind of being fast-tracked into management at Google come through. It was shortly after the first Google phone, the Nexus, came out. I had one of them and I brought it back and we're all playing with it. Like, okay, this is great, the Android smartphone, right? That really supposed to be the best of the best at the time. And then we realized we can't use Impesa on it. Impesa is the mobile money system in Kenya that moves like 25% of the GDP every day. Turns out that the software engineers who were working on this at Google, they were visiting us and so we asked them. And so we had them up in front of the stage in front of everybody. We're like, why can't we use Impesa on this? And they said, well, we never thought it was important because we don't use it in the States to enable the SIM tool. Because M-Pesa is so much a part of people's lives in Kenya, that phone will never be used. It's understanding that local context is what drives so much of the adoption. In our inaugural episode of The Flip, we're taking the worm's eye view. A tenet of entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley style entrepreneurship in particular is doing just that getting as close to the customer or end user as possible to best understand and implement solutions for them. But I wanted to know what this looks like across the African continent, and in particular, to explore more contextually relevant local stories on entrepreneurship. You see, I'm an American expat living in South Africa, and I learned that my lens, the one formed by Silicon Valley thought leadership and by pervasive narratives of Africa in general and entrepreneurship in Africa in particular, that lens wasn't the right one to be using in this market and in this context. But what's really going on here? If Google can't properly develop a phone for Kenya the first time around, who are the people that are solving problems and filling the gaps? And how are they doing it? So today on The Flip, we learn from a set of entrepreneurs filling those gaps, who are solving problems more unique to the African markets in which they operate by taking the worm's eye view. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. In The Flip, we're exploring alternative narratives surrounding African entrepreneurship and, when appropriate, challenging the contextual relevance and ubiquity of Silicon Valley thought leadership. In our inaugural episode, our journey of discovery starts in Uganda's capital city of Kampala. When you come to Uganda, they will call it Boda Boda. When you go to Kenya, they will also call it Boda Boda, I think. When you go like to Rwanda, Chigali, they'll call it motors. When you go to Nigeria, like West Africa, many people will refer to it as Okada. That's Ricky Rapa Thompson, co-founder of the Ugandan ride-hailing app, Safe Boda. A border border for anyone who's never been to Uganda, it's a motorcycle taxi that people use to commute from point A to point B in most of the urban cities across Africa. 
I wanted to talk to Ricky about SafeBoda's origin story, as it's a great example of the entrepreneur taking the worm's eye view and creating innovation from the bottom up. Ricky himself was a Boda driver before going on to become a tech co-founder. I joined the Boda Boda industry in 2011. In 2012, I founded the City Tour company. Early 2014, I lost one of my very good friends that I was working with almost every other day. He got a minor accident and um, he had a crack in his head and he died. But after that, I realized there are so many accidents that are still going to happen and there's something that needed to be done. So I started as an advocate of road safety. The Boda Boda industry at that time was suffering major reputational issues, perpetuated by inconsistent pricing, a lack of adherence to the rules of the road, and major problems with safety. One of my selling points was offering a helmet. I used to carry a second helmet. So it was alongside that that I started advocating for helmet wearing. I used to give my customers helmet, offer them. But it used to be a very, very tough discussion to convince one customer to wear a helmet. Once they refused to wear a helmet, I'd actually give it to them to carry it for me. And I would make it personal that I would tell them about the story of my friend who died in a border-related accident. So he would agree and then the next day, he would call me and ask for the helmet and helmet and helmet. Most times, we would agree when we were already on motion. Because every time I would try to make someone wear a helmet from the beginning, they would say, no, 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 no. So I would make you sit. I talk to you. Before we complete the journey, you'd make me stop and wear the helmet. And then the next day, you just wear a helmet. You wear, you wear, you wear. So as Ricky set out on the difficult path of changing customers' behavior and increasing safety in the Boda industry, it was a serendipitous connection on one of his Boda tours that ultimately led him to tech entrepreneurship. I had one of my clients called Louis Northcott from the UK, who was a client who came on a Boda tour. I told her about my story and what I wanted to do. He said, I'll spare some time and come back to Uganda to help you. So she came back to Uganda three months later to help me craft the project. You know, I didn't know that much, but all I wanted to do was possibly do up a small call center and then... Um, train drivers, provide them with equipment, then customers would call to the call center, and then they get connected to drivers. And what happened is, when we were crafting and working on the idea, Louis happened to have been staying in one of the shared houses with Max, who is now one of the co-founders of SafeBoda. So Max got interested in the story, and he had lived and worked in Rwanda, Chigali, where 100% customers and drivers wear helmets. So he felt very, very uncomfortable using borders every time he would come to Uganda. So he said, I want to meet that young man. They called me, we met, and we agreed that we we're going to work on a project called Safe Border. Now, with any marketplace or product, such as a ride-hailing app, it's necessary to build up both sides of the marketplace. Though Safe Boda provided a better innovation for customers, it was the improvement to safety and to the reputation of Boda drivers that was vital to build up the supply side of Safe Boda and to provide a superior experience for their customers. Ultimately, what made SafeBoda uniquely positioned for success was Ricky's intimate understanding of the needs and wants of the Boda industry, because the Boda industry was his industry. A Boda guy needs to speak to a Boda guy to make that person understand. For us as Boda drivers, we are smart. We need other Boda drivers to be the one to speak to us. That's why like, from the point where I've been really focusing on like the Boda Boda world, the Boda Boda drivers. When I started this journey, I made sure I recruited people who have been in the border industry to work with me. That was an eye-opener because once I got these people to believe in me, they would share the message with other people. So 
the words and the good things about SafeWare just kept on growing slowly, systematically, because of the kind of people that we were relating with. So what we have done is we have worked together as border drivers, as people who have been in the border body industry, as people who, who appreciate our work and know what we want from the border body industry and work together as a team. Even as of today, as I speak, most of the operation team are dominated by ex-Boda drivers. For Ricky and Boda drivers, it wasn't merely about an opportunity to make more money or use technology to provide an improved experience for end users. It was equally about dignity and respect. SafeBoda gave its drivers a unique ID number, a uniform, and their names on their uniform. They gave their drivers an identity, which proved vital in getting buy-in and creating behavior change amongst the Boda drivers. They were like this first group of people who really needed change. And most of the time, that was the reason they joined us, because they wanted an identity, they wanted a sense of belonging, and they wanted some kind of a human face into the business that they were doing. When I started sharing my idea and what we wanted to do with the border drivers, they were like, yeah, if I'm going to look different, if people are going to appreciate me, if I'm going to make more money, if I'm going to be respected, then I am going to be part of Safe Border. And if you're wondering how Ricky and his team have done from a driver recruitment and retention perspective. When you look at other ride hailing companies across the world, we are one unique company that has a retention of over 80% of our drivers. Meanwhile, take a guess at Uber's global retention rate. It's only 4%. So after five years of building and innovation, how does Ricky describe Safe Border today? If you ask me and you're in Kampala, like, what is Safe Border? You know, we're a tech company, but people do not know us for being a tech company. People know us because of the people that we have worked with from the point go. So today I would define Safe Border as a community of Kampala's best border drivers that we have selected among the rest and trained them, empowered them to be able to support the community, the ecosystem as well. One thing that we pride of is the community of drivers that we have created and they advocate for what is best for themselves. And I think that is what has kept us going. So while a Boda driver started Safe Boda, what about startups whose founders come from a different background than their customers? Our aim was to use technology and hardware to mitigate risk and try to stop the challenge of Shackfire. That's David Gluckman, the CEO of South African technology and financial services company, Lumkani. Well, Francois was our founder who was at the University of Cape Town, and he was kind of tasked with finding a technical solution to the challenge of Shackfire. The technical solution David is referring to came in the form of a networked heat sensor device used in population-dense informal settlements. When a fire has been detected, the system sounds the alarm of the network devices within a certain radius of the triggered sensor and also notifies residents via SMS, allowing for rapid detection and networked alert. So the kind of main design feature was that the diversion of fire detection in formal and informal spaces is your method of detection. So do you detect for smoke or heat? That is the immediate diversion. In a place like this, in this office, we cannot detect for heat. Heat dissipates weirdly. You also don't expect to see smoke in this place. So that is the best form of early warning. In our market households, smoke is, you know, very, very prolific. It's either fire burning inside your home from fossil fuels, a paraffin stove, a candle, smoke outside, dust, you name it. So. The idea of doing a smoke detector would have been foolish. 
And furthermore, our devices actually network to each other using radio frequencies. So if we were to have a device as sensitive, as very sensitive sensor, we'd actually be annoying a lot more people than we currently do. Hopefully we don't annoy anyone, but we do need to network. The importance of the network is critical in reducing community-wide risk, which we've seen time and time. I mean, almost every situation we have, it's the network that reduces the risk. We can already start to see the unique design features of Lumkani's network device that were necessary to create the greatest utility for the end user in informal settlements. But it was the customer feedback and listening that led them into financial services. The main driver was the business and the customer. So our customers said, look, it's all cool and well. We may or may not pay this upfront price for this fire detector, but like, what is the deal, right? So if it detects and then I still have a fire, what next is basically the question. What will you do? We found that the best possible way about doing that was through financial services. It's a really much easier way and a much more tangible way and probably a more effective way of dealing with the issue. So back in 2016, Lumkani introduced FireCover, South Africa's first insurance product for households in informal settlements. And Lumkani's strong local partnerships allowed them to gain trust and co-develop these financial services products with their end users. A lot of the design, a lot of the thinking, a lot of the strategy was kind of co-developed with your end user. Like we, we could speak to our end user every single day. And that's probably one of our critical enablers, the ease of access we had to our client or who would be our future client. Our original partnership was with an NGO that was working with a network of informal settlement communities. The people who were working in the organization and rallying their communities were part of the organization. So the NGO is structured as a very grassroots organization. So we weren't talking to like elites who would then pass us down, like the members of the committee of the NGO with those living in our household. This co-development process also allowed Limkani's co-founders, none of whom grew up in a township, to create the utmost value for their users and crucially to build trust in an industry where the trust is vital yet has eroded in this market in the past. It's always going to be a big challenge when you're faced with requiring quite a lot of trust and your customers a little bit cash constrained. Trust is like the biggest thing for anyone who's trying to sell you something as important as financial services. And like, look, things like claims are really important, right? You deliver a claim, you've changed the nature of trust in a space. Having local agents is definitely a thing. Having built local relationships, kind of investing a bit of infrastructure, like a big billboard or like a kiosk, or when people have seen your agent there for three years or two years or whatever the case may be, there's this level of like, okay, Maybe this is, this is legit. But going where no other insurance company has gone before was not without its own operational and design challenges as well. There is nothing that we could draw on to build this. Absolutely nothing. Not from the way we collect the money. Cash is still our major channel of collection. I mean, no insurance company accepts cash. Optimizing the time an agent works in the time of the month, we've had to like really invest a lot of time and so... When is the best time to collect money? Now we're doing push to pay. If I had pushed to pay in the back in the day, it would have changed the game because I wouldn't have had to even figure out because the client would tell me when they're ready. Like on-demand payments is obviously a dream. The flexibility of how the client can pay and drop off and we know exactly when a client drops off or why they drop off or when we need to stop them from dropping off and clients who even come back after like months you know, who we've then subsequently suspended and we understand why that is the case. And no insurance company gets that data. Um, look, granted, we come from a very low base of customers, so we can invest so much more in learning. Lumkani has endeavored to solve a difficult problem for the bottom of the pyramid. 
but is proving that there is market demand for a product developed with the right features and at the right price point for a specific end user. From ride hailing in Uganda and insurance in informal settlements in South Africa, we move naturally to crowdfunding farming in Nigeria. Hi, my name is Onyeka Akuma, and I'm the founder and CEO of Farm Crowdy. Farm Crowdy is a crowdfunding platform out of Abuja, where everyday Nigerians can invest in agriculture harvests around the country. We've been able to use our website, our mobile apps, to sensitize the public about how agriculture can have tremendous impact on the economy and get them to also participate in it while informing them about the process involved in agriculture and then getting them to make money. So they're doing good while doing well. While making money, the farmers are getting wealthier. And um, at the end of the cycle, there's more food that's produced. In terms of impact, Farm Crowdy's stats are impressive. In the last two years, we've generated close to $11 million in sponsorship for the platform. U.S. dollars in sponsorship through the platform. We've been able to work with about 13 to 14,000 farmers across 14 states in Nigeria. We've been able to cultivate about 16,000 acres of farmland, raised over 2 million birds today. We currently have dumb maize, rice, soya, chicken, cow farms, cassava farms. We also have the largest community of agri-enthusiasts in Africa on a platform we call Agri-Square, with about 16,000 people as of today. So it's like a forum that allows people to throw questions related to agriculture and get answers from experts. Onyeka came from a technology background and didn't have any agriculture experience prior to Farm Crowdy. But he always paid attention to agriculture, given its importance to the Nigerian economy, and saw an opportunity to help farmers improve their yields using technology. Not many people have really done valuable stuff using technology to create solutions for people. So I saw that opportunity to be able to use technology to get people that are excited about investing in these farmers and then sign up the farmers that will take that investment and do the proper work. But the underlying factor was that technology that was connecting both sides. I had the idea around the fact that we could get people to come together to invest in agriculture rather than having one person taking the risk alone. In doing my research on which farmers to work with, I noticed that there were over 38 billion farmers in Nigeria that had three main problems, access to funding, technical knowledge to improve their yields, and market access to sell what they've produced. So we then designed the model of getting a crowd of people to farm through our platform. So they invest through us for us to sign up the farmers to do the work they need to do on their farm. During the initial design phase, it was vital, specifically given the novel nature of Farm Crowdy and the inherent risk that comes with investing, to intimately understand and to address and design for the concerns and considerations on both sides of the crowdfunding marketplace. I would put myself in the shoes of the first investor that wanted to invest in the platform. It was a case of I had to be the first investor, and I noticed the challenge the investors were having. The, one of it was the farmers weren't giving them enough updates. It was... They were worried about the risk of their investment going bad and them losing all their capital. These were my own worries as well. So I put myself in the shoes of the person investing in the platform and trying to make sure we designed a platform that met all those needs. So we provided insurance covers for their capital. We provided updates from the farms so that the person is getting updates about the activities that are going on on the farm. 
And then we did all the things necessary from a technical expertise standpoint to make sure that the investor is comfortable with his investment with us. And then we kept the time. We had our customer service taking care of them. In Onyeka's case, it was his personal buy-in, skin in the game, that helped mitigate the concerns that existed from the investing side. But not having a farming background, testing and iteration was the way forward for creating solutions for the farmers. On the farmer's end, we took up several test projects to try to understand what the farmer's needs were. And in, this, in understanding and finding those needs, we then arrived at a place where we picked those major points that if we were able to solve for the farmers, we would have more impact on a larger scale in providing updates to the farmers or telling the farmers how to do things better on their farm, technical expertise. We decided to build a mobile app that we're able to get the farmers to use to have access to technical experts that will translate this to them in their own language. I mean, recently we also started thinking about IVR and how we can use voice recognition software to provide it with voice tutorials, not just text again. So this solution helps the farmers to be able to get the desired knowledge they need to improve their yields. The second is the farmers struggle with where they sell what they produce. And so we built a platform called FarmGate Africa to give the farmers access to the right market so that they can make a decent margin and becoming a super middleman because now the farmer is able to see the average price from the buyer directly and he knows how much he can make. So that aggregation point on FarmGate Africa became a solution to those farmers. The last thing, the farmers struggle with accessing funding from banks because they usually go as individuals. We were able to aggregate them as cooperatives to allow them to now do this through a platform and get the right inputs they need in order to get the desired needs after. Crucially, Onyeka and FarmCrowdy were very strategic and selective in how they approached farmers' problems and in determining what problems to solve for. We decided to start small so that we can learn through the process and then start making changes and making adjustments, dealing with the risk and reducing it, and then we started scaling. Now, rather doing everything for a farmer and you, you're not able to scale with that. So we looked at the different pain points, identified those ones that we could scale with, and that was how we arrived at the model we have today. So we don't solve all the problems. We just pick some of the problems that we become very good at solving and then we can scale with it. I believe that this strategy is key. Sometimes it's not what you choose to do that's most important, but it's what you choose not to do. Farm credit is not solving every problem. And in intimately understanding their end user, they're able to pick the most scalable problems in an effort to create the most impact for them. The future for us is we want to sign up on our platform a minimum of 30 million farmers that will be able to access our service. If we have 30 million farmers in Nigeria, that's one over three of all the farmers in the country. That is a focus point for us. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of my self-appointed executive producer and B-Mike, the Nigerian-born and Johannesburg-based entrepreneur, Shio Folawayo. Shio is also the co-founder and CEO of home services marketplace, Kendua.com. For each episode and theme, we wish to further explore and discuss what we as entrepreneurs get out of the insights shared from those interviewed. The truth is, there is no prescription for entrepreneurship. And we don't want to create the type of content in which we pretend to know exactly what entrepreneurs need to do. Nor do we wish entirely for the benefit of the flip 
in which we compare and contrast African entrepreneurship with Western thought leadership to create differences where there actually aren't any there. Instead, we wish just to transparently put everything out there on the table and let people come up with their own conclusions. So, what did Shayo and I get out of this topic and the insights shared from Ricky, David, and Onyeka? Take a listen. Effectively, there's a gap. There's an opportunity created by the specificity of the problem. And those who know the problem well are well positioned to solve it. I'm trying to decide if I agree. I don't know the specificity of the problem makes it a bigger opportunity. Bigger in what sense? More. Or more of or what, in any sense. I don't mean more lucrative. I just mean an op- fun, maybe an opportunity. I don't think the specificity of the challenge makes it any more of an opportunity than any other opportunity. I think it's a greater opportunity for those who know the market more intimately than a foreigner, for example. Though I suppose a foreigner can learn the market, but that's going to take a longer amount of time and be more expensive. So that I think might be true. How do we substantiate that within the the actual body of the podcast? I'm just not sure there is a particularly... In my mind, there's no point in like making up a juxtaposition when there isn't one. I think you just say, like, hey, this is one of the times where it's exactly the same. But isn't it interesting kind of problems that people have? I suppose if we're searching for things that aren't true, then I don't want to misrepresent the situation. So what we can say is getting close to the customer is ubiquitous, right? That's, that's sort of a tenant that's ubiquitous. Taking the worms I view is ubiquitous, right? But isn't it interesting the types of people that can solve these types of problems here in Africa, right? An Uber driver didn't start Uber. A Boda driver started Safe Boda. But then I think there's also a lot of examples of Boda companies that weren't started by Boda drivers. So the thing is, it's both. It's both. There's no prescription. No, I think I'm more not looking for prescription as much as I'm looking for pattern, which just makes the narrative stronger. I don't know what it means. If there's no pattern. Yeah. So an Uber driver did not start Uber, but a Boda driver started, say, Boda. And so, therefore... Does there have to be a therefore, or can it just be, and that's interesting? Why is it interesting? You don't think that that's interesting? No. But to be fair, maybe this is our conversation. Yeah, I mean, this could be the conversation. And I also think that's, like, interesting as well, like, in terms of a way of going about this. It's just, like, a bit transparent about the conversations we're having and then let people come to their own conclusions. I would like to make the argument that it's perhaps easier for local people to start something because they understand the problem more intimately. But again, that's prescriptive. Like there's cases in which being close to the problem is helpful and there's cases in which being close to the problem is disadvantageous. In a startup world, it's just you and your customer. It's just like, get it done. I've never heard of anyone being too close to solve a problem. But what about this notion of being close to the problem means that you think that you understand the customer and there may be sort of like a false paradigm where like you're not actually taking in customer feedback or doing sort of like the design thinking sorts of exercises because you're kind of making assumptions because of how close you are to the customer because of how intimately you understand the problem. A better way to ask that question is in some instances, might a startup founder be better off by assuming they know nothing? And does that make it easier to assume they know nothing when they actually know nothing about the market? Yeah, I think there's something to that. But I just think that in the space where time is, is like a super valuable commodity, those assumptions are probably what often make the difference between a winner and a loser, just someone who kind of 
and make those quick assumptions based on their experience. There might be questions around how you define that customer. Is the customer segment that you're talking to the right customer segment that is like your experience? So you have to have an open mind. But if we just assume that like your closeness to the problem is not fabricated and the customer you're serving is someone that is actually like you, I think almost 95% of the time is probably more beneficial. than. So then what we're arguing is that being closer to the customer and understanding the customer problem is more beneficial 95% of the time. Yeah. Okay. And so here in this episode, we talk of three cases of people, some started close to the customer and then some got close to the customer. Either way, they ended up close to the customer. And they all have quite different businesses. Well, is the conclusion perhaps, are we validating, like validating the ubiquity of design thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what's happened. Which I think is cool because I think it sets up like the thought that we're not out to just bash on Silicon Valley shit. Um, some shit is just like, makes sense, right? And then it also sets up the rest of the contrast. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Like, if we are to create a blueprint at some point down the line, right? It's not going to be entirely different or diametrically opposed to the lean startup, right? It's still going to have many tenants of this methodology of apply because it is universally applicable. I think in this experience and through this process, we can confirm and validate that much of it is in fact applicable, but there are going to be some instances, this may not be one, but there are going to be some instances where we find other things that are not applicable, right? And then that's going to be the key diversion. Exactly. And the point is really about being able to tell the difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Flip. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media at The Flip Africa. You can also join our newsletter by going on our website, theflip.africa. Tweet us, DM us, email us. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show. We'll see you next time.